Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. In recent episodes, we've talked to a lot of different people working inside organisations big and small. Those conversations were about everyday insights into leadership styles and challenges. But I thought it was time to go to the top and talk to a CEO who attracts a lot of attention. Melanie Silver is CEO and Vice President of Google in Australia and New Zealand. She's worked there for 15 years. Before Google, Mel worked at AMP, IAG and Citibank. There's plenty more to say, but I won't spoil it, except she explores managing conflict, career planning and thinking days. Mel Silver, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. I want to start sort of at the beginning with you and talk about your 15-year history at Google because that's really unusual in a CV these days. So can you tell us how you've come to be there this long? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me, Helen. It's great to be here. I am surprised myself sometimes because prior to joining Google, I'd never really stayed at a job that long and never thought I would. I guess there's a couple of things that keep me there. One is the culture. And the second thing is just the pace of change. It feels like I haven't had the same job for more than a year ever at Google. And just think about it, put the, put the time holder down, 2007 compared to now. So much has changed on the internet. So just tell us in a, in a quick potted history about what your different roles were. Yeah. So I started out as a, what was called an industry marketing manager. And my job was to go and look for insights to help the sales team sell ads, basically sell search ads. Then it evolved to leading a vertical team, which was focused on the financial services industry. And I'd worked in a lot of financial services roles before that. So that was a great gig for me. Then that team became bigger and I became the director of that team. A couple of babies in between there. Came back and was running a different set of verticals. So travel and government, which was super fun. Learned a lot. Then I went off to Singapore and I was running our sort of strategy and operations team for all of APAC. And then I came back to be the country manager for Australia and New Zealand. So, yeah, never a dull moment. Yeah, it's, it's um, quite unusual, I think, for someone to take on a really big role. And let's face it, the, you know, running Google in Australia is a, probably a very sought-after role and a very big role. But to do it from within, were you actively positioning your career at some point for that role? Or was it genuinely just a complete surprise? And you're like, oh, great, I'm now the CEO. Well, absolutely it was. I mean, I applied for it once and didn't get it. And I think that's a hugely important story for people to hear because I think sometimes people do look at 
my career trajectory and say, well, she's just glided on in on a unicorn with beautiful looking hair. That's definitely what it looks like. You know, (laughs) and it's not. Like it's been a struggle and learning and sometimes you win and sometimes you don't. And to be really honest, all of those times when I didn't get a job, they were the best because it kind of pushed me to go and do something different. I would have never gone to Singapore and taken that role had I not not been given the Australia role back when I applied the first time. And I come back to apply for it again when it's open again, and I'm so much better. I've were learned you, so much Were more. you scared when you applied for it the second time? A little bit, of course. <laughs> yeah. I don't get it this time. <laughs> yeah. and But look, I, did, I don't think it was ever an existential, if you don't give it to me, I'm out sort of thing. I've never really understood that approach. I loved the job I had at the time. So it was a little bit of a, well, I'll, I'll go for it again. And if I don't get it, then I'm pretty happy with doing what I'm doing. So it's not that big a deal. I ask everyone who chats to us on this podcast what sort of leader they are. Can you describe what sort of leader you are? Well, look, I mean, I think I would probably go to what people would say. I'm very direct. I, you don't die wondering with Mel. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm a bit the same. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm pretty authentic. I don't really kind of like to sugarcoat things and, and I'm the person who brings a bit of levity to a situation. That's more my character of leadership. I think the substance of the leadership is I really love developing people and pushing them outside their comfort zone and stretching them. That's so interesting. I was having a a conversation with one of my introverted team leaders this morning who was saying, people, like, they're just driving me crazy. And I said, yes, that's one of the interesting bits about being a leader is that you actually have to some days push through the pain barrier of working with people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And you obviously don't find it that. You obviously find it most of the time, enjoyable. Yeah, look, I mean, I think you do because the culture creates an environment where people are 99.9% of the time in pursuit of something awesome, right? It's always frustrating, whether you're at work or not, to deal with someone who just doesn't want to be where they are. But I find that most of the enriching conversations that I'm having are, I really want the next opportunity. What can I do? And sometimes it's so, so common actually that they're landlocked on that job that their boss has. And I just love having those conversations that are about, okay, color outside the lines a little bit. What else? What's the real long-term goal? And those kind of pushing people's boundaries conversations are the ones I love the most. I agree. I really enjoy it as well. Have you done leadership training or has it always just been instinctive for you? Um, I think my Kindergarten report card said she's a natural leader. (laughs) But that said, I'm a really avid student of it. Yeah. And I read a lot about it and I have done a lot of training. But, you know, training, I think people learn in in really different ways. I've always sort of, even when I'm designing development capability building programs at Google, I think deeply about how much of it is education, like in a classroom versus experiences and exposure right? Because hanging out and having a conversation with someone who's really good at something, that's how I learn the most. But one of the best leadership trainings that I ever went on was actually designed just for women. And we all went away and we got sort of the first half of the day to just get to know each other (laughs) and just hang and have a chat, have a bit of a chin wag. And so the next day when we came in to sort of learn, 
we had bonds and we had connections and we were really supportive of one another. But this course in particular was all about how do you get into flow and how do you get into that deep thinking, which as a leader, you need that time, right? And if you let yourself be a slave to your calendar, people will eat up your time and you will be busy, but you won't be making any impact. And I don't want to be the busiest person. I want to be the most impactful person. And so I came back from that course with just some really simple things about how to be a great leader, how to make sure I prioritize time to think about the big things. And so, you know, takes for example, I have a thinking day once every six weeks, not negotiable, no meetings. I just, I have three topics that I want to think deeply about. I spend an hour and a half on each one and I'm sure my team hate it because I come back with lots of action items and emails, but I feel so focused. And you know what? In the lead up to that thinking day, I can feel the tension. I can feel that I'm not as good as I could be because I need to think deeply about some things. So on a thinking day, are you in the office or are you sitting under a tree? Well, pre-having a two-year-old, Helen, it was definitely at home that I would do those things. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to come back to your two-year-old. Yes. (laughs) Um, So that's changed things up a little bit, but um, mostly at home, yeah. Right. So is there an activity? Is it a cup of tea in the sun? Is it calling people to bounce ideas off them? No, it's mind mapping. Yep. It's thinking about people I want to talk to, coming up with action plans and people who I want to be involved in little SWAT teams. Sometimes it's just provocations that I'll send to other people to say, hey, I'd really love for us to start thinking about X, Y, Z because ABC and we should have a conversation about that. So yeah, it's a whole bunch of of different things, but I generally come out with two or three full pages of things that I want to sort of follow up on. So you start with a topic, give you an hour and a half on that, and then you move to the next topic. Absolutely. See, I, I'm an eight o'clock in the morning Slack person. People just get inundated with Slack messages from me because for the same thing, it's overnight. So mm. I've had time to think. Mm-hmm. But you know, you know when you go on holidays and you, you know, you read a book and you sit on a plane and you watch all those movies, mm. you do always come back with a pretty different perspective on whatever role you're you're in. The power of flow. Like it was just, that was the number one lesson for me, that if you actually just give yourself time and space, your mind goes into different places than if you're reacting and just trying to do something super quickly. So career planning, how deliberate have you been about it? Very undeliberate. Yeah, like every <laughs> other woman that I interview. Yeah. It's always a bit of an accident. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely no way that in 2007, I mean, some people thought I was crazy for leaving, you know, a company like Fairfax to go and work at Google. I think there was no chance that I thought at the time that I would end up, you know, running Australia and New Zealand either. But I have no plans, but I'm very open. And I think I have a really rigid set of criteria that I evaluate jobs against. And so... It's not like, oh, by this age, I want to be in this job. It's more, I want to keep my eyes open. I want to, when I'm evaluating a job, there's sort of five things that I'm going to look at. And I I actually tell people this all the time because I think it's a great way to evaluate. You know, you sometimes you want a promotion and that's not something you should be ashamed of saying. Sometimes you just think, that's it, I'm ready to progress. I need to progress. That's fine. Sometimes it's pay. You know, your life changes. You might need more money. You know, the next two are sort of more qualitative and that's, you know, 
I need to learn something new. I need to acquire a skill. You know, you might take a new job for that reason. Dopamine hits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I think you do. If you've run out of dopamine hits in the job that you're getting, you'd need to seek out a new one where you're going to get them. And some people get dopamine hits from learning. Some people get it from spending time with people. Some people get it from doing deep flow work or coding or whatever it might be. And then finally, it's where's your life at? Like, what do you need as a human being? Do you need more flexibility? Are you able to travel a lot more? Do you want to go live in another country? On a good day, you'll probably be able to optimize for two or three of those things. So choose what's most important. And if a job comes across your plate that delivers on two or three of those goals, go for it. When you arrived, we were having a conversation with the the previous podcast guest, and I heard you say something along the lines of, you know, imagine what it was like when you're first at Google and no one wants to hear or see you. Mm-hmm. And you reminded me of what it was like when I first launched Future Women. You know, like there are some people that just are like mm-hmm. wouldn't talk to you at all. Tell me, how do you reconcile that to today where <laughs> you're like the biggest thing in the world? Like, do, do you ever kind of just want to go, nah, 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 you know, you should have taken me more seriously back then. No, not at all. Not okay, at all. what's a better version of it? Like, do you ever sit back and kind of reflect on actually the way human beings treat one another? Oh, that's a, that's a super interesting question. Yeah, that's a better way of putting it. Um, I think you definitely notice that people treat you differently. Mm. But I think that's more positional power. That's existed for decades, right? And and I'm not afraid to say, oh, I can get meetings with people because of the job title that I have. The second meeting will come because it's Mel Silver. So you've always got to earn that second meeting, right? And that that's the same as the story in the Google early days. I think, you know, I'd worked in marketing and, of course, you're a salesperson, you're out there, you're going to knock on the list of contacts that you have. And some of those first meetings you did only get because they knew you. But then over time you've got to deliver results and you've got to build great relationships. That's the sort of nature of of all sales and good business, right? Have you ever just had one of those meetings where the person who wouldn't take you seriously now is taking you seriously and so goes, (laughs) geez, I'm really sorry back then. (laughs) Like, I really wished I'd not. I have one the other day with someone where I um, (laughs) had to write to someone and go, I'd been in a situation where I'd forgotten that person on at least two occasions. And she said to me, we had definitely met a couple of times. And I just thought, oh, she is never going to talk to me ever again. Like, she's had to tell me that. And she's just can't understand how I haven't remembered her. Anyway, for some reason, I needed to send a message to her rather than just not do it. So I wrote an email saying something like, oh, I've been dreading sending this email. (laughs) because I really do remember who you are this time. <laughs> anyway, she was, I can't remember how I worded it, but she wrote this fabulous email back and said, that's just made my day. Yep. So there are ways to turn a really awkward, terrible scenario into a good one. Um, I'm off on a tangent. <laughs> um, do you think women lead differently? Yeah, I do. And I also think there are some men who lead differently, and I think that's kind of the ultimate goal of, diversity, right, is to have diversity of thought. That's why we we all want it. Even in careers where I've worked alongside men for a really long time, I have seen their leadership style evolve. I have seen women who've been exposed to great male leaders adapt the things that are good 
reject the things that are bad. To me, the essence of a great leader is someone who's just always moving forward, right? There's not my management style and my leadership style and this is it and take it or leave it. I think the greatest leaders are sort of evolving and seeing where the world's at and listening and looking at what kind of people they're leading and what motivates them and what's going on in the whole world and saying, what do my people need right now? What does my business need right now? These are some of the things you think about on a thinking day. You zoom out and look at the whole system. You say, well, I can solve this problem. And if I was at work in the fray, I would probably just look at that particular thing and solve that thing. But on a thinking day, you sort of zoom out and look at the whole system. And you lead differently when you're open to stimuli, right, to, to other things that are out there. But look, I think women, women have brought a sense of empathy and I think nurturing to the workplace that has really helped unlock a new level of transparency in organisations, a new level of vulnerability in organisations. But like I said, I've seen male leaders now take that on board and do it super well as well. So yeah, I think they lead differently, but not, it's not better. You made headlines when you appeared to defend Google's position against the then Morrison government, which was attempting to curtail, I guess, some of Google's power. Would you put it that way? I mean, the code was looking at competition and bargaining power. Yeah. And you were up against everyone at the time. The, the federal government had the wind in its sails. The, every media company was supporting it. And you had to represent Google's position. And unbeknownst to everybody, you were very pregnant and actually about to have a, a baby. And that happened the next day. Is that, am I got the timing right? Can you, t- just, can you tell the story from you your perspective? You do have the timing right. Look, yes. I think um, it was an intense time. I think it's pretty well documented, the whole sort of run of events. But it was a hectic time, Helen. It was a really intense time. And I remember the day that the baby was due was about four days after the Senate hearing was supposed to happen. And I remember at the time <laughs> with the team, yes, I'm going to have like four whole days. Like, this is great. I'm so glad that the dates come in at this time. And of course, you know, Babies love to choose their own birthdays. So, look, his date of birth was actually a bit of a surprise. He wasn't due that day. But here's the thing. Women have babies all day, every day, right, in fields sometimes. And when you're a mum, it's the most important thing to you. And it was my third baby as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, look, not going to lie, it was a big day. Yes. <laughs> It so was a big day. Just get, just get, talk me through the timing. You were presenting on Zoom or mm-hmm. on video. Mm-hmm. And when did you realise you were about to have a baby? Oh, it was that night. Yeah, that night he um, started making his way. Really the message to all of us reading that story a couple of weeks later, I think is when it came out, was the extraordinary commitment and dedication to your job and resilience to continue to fight that case right up to the point of having the baby. 
Thank you, Helen. Was I appreciate that. It was, it was an extraordinary thing <laughs> to do. I do appreciate that because I do bring an extraordinary amount of passion to my work. And it's one of the things that, you know, to your earlier question, I think has kept me at Google for so long because legit from the, the first day I walked in there, you know, I think the feedback that I always had from people in my performance reviews before I joined Google was like, you know, Mel, you're great. You just need to like tone it down a little bit, <laughs> right? You're a bit extra. <laughs> and I walk into Google and it was almost like people swarming around. He's going, yes, you're awesome. So like more, more. And you're home. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of my first performance reviews was like two words gets it. <laughs> Right, I, I was going to say, wow. not, not enthusiastic yeah, enough. No, I'm home, I'm <laughs> home. And so, you know, I felt passionately about the issue. The team and I had had a really intense year thinking about how we should respond to it. And if I could be there, I was going to be there. We had contingency plans. We were prepared just in case. <laughs> I mean, there must have been lawyers lined up somewhere inside Google going, you can't do this. No. They were all, okay, all. fine, go for it. Well, at the time, we had a, an incredible female cross-functional leadership team, so it couldn't have felt more supportive. Amazing. Yeah. Could not have felt like more of a tribe of support. Are you good at managing conflict? Oh, look, it feels uncomfortable to answer that question. Yeah. I think it's just par for the course, but as I get older and, I guess, more settled, Conflict really only happens when two people care deeply about something and just happen to disagree. And if you think about it, well, not really. It can be ego. Well, but this is, again, it speaks to culture. And I think part of what's important in our culture and part of the norms that we try to sort of instill is that you fight the idea, don't fight the person. And so I think when I frame it that way, that it's just two people who care deeply and just happen to disagree, it's much easier to bring those people together or to coach them on how to get to some sort of resolution. And I'm a big fan of disagree and commit, <laughs> right? So you're not going to win all of them. But leaders who lean into that discomfort are way more successful than leaders who avoid it. That's all I know. Yes. Someone very wise sat where you're sitting, and actually it was Rian Norman, who's a psychologist, the idea is not you. So if your idea gets beaten or dismissed, don't take it personally. Yeah. And, you know, one of the habits and rituals that I like to practice is constantly asking my team, how could I be wrong? So if I put a stake in the ground or I have an idea, I always like to sort of follow up with, how could I be wrong? Because it just invites it. And it invites it from a discussion point of view, not from a, Mel just threw something out and then we all, I guess, have to do it and then we walk out and we all think it's crap. And so yeah. <laughs> we have side conversations and that's when it becomes a conflict, right? It's such a simple thing to say, how could I be wrong? But do you want to be wrong all the time? Like, do you want someone to tell you all the time that they don't think you're right? Are there days you just went, no, no, no. I know, not today. I just want you to do it today. <laughs> um, look, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess there's different situations, right? When the, when the conflict or the problem's coming to you and you think you're the span breaker, then 
yes, you just make a decision and you, you go with it. But I think when you're germinating an idea, yes, I want to know if people think I'm wrong. I want people to fight it and throw rocks at it because then if we all agree, then it's seriously robust and has got so much more alignment and momentum behind it. So, yeah. Can we talk a little bit about young people? Mm-hmm. There's a, a lot of conversation in, in leadership roles in, in, in amongst leaders that I talk to about what young people are doing and are driving inside organisations. In fact, they're driving an awful lot inside organisations. What are you seeing in a business the size of Google? I'm seeing people who blow my socks off most of the time. <laughs> I'm trying to spot and make lists of the people I will work for one day. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a couple of observations. One is the bravery and courage and kind of some of the things that the younger folks at Google come to me with as issues that they think I should be looking at blow my mind. And I, I often turn around and go, I would never have had the courage to say what that person just said to me, to my boss. 20 years ago. Never. And so you have to just be so impressed with that. You, you do. And I'm not, I don't want to give away my age because obviously I started working like, you know, five minutes ago. <laughs> um, but I've seen it. I've seen it evolve. Right? I've seen it go from a point where I felt like I had to be one of the boys. A hundred percent. And were you? <laughs> oh, yeah. Mm. Big time. Mm. And now I feel like I work in a place where women's standards are not just set, but they are maintained and they are protected in a completely different way. Completely different way. So I think change feels uncomfortable all the time. But yeah, I think the young people have a courage and a bravery and a desire to link what they're doing to a purpose in a way that I've never seen before. Don't get me wrong, that's challenging. Yes. It's challenging for a lot of people because it means you need to be more flexible. You need to be a little bit more probably open to various location strategies. It means that you, you know, have to change the way you do certain things. But it's about listening, I guess. Yeah, and it's not while you're right that they are challenging and moving as a force through organizations and across the globe, it's not necessarily one issue. There's multiple issues. Yeah. Yeah. At all times. Multiple issues at all times. But is the higher purpose, right? Or the first order principle, whatever you want to say. Google's game is in digital and the internet. And if you look at where the trends of that industry have come from over countless generations. <laughs> Young people are at the heart of that, right? So just as if we heard that, well, what's it like working with women? Oh, they're really needy and they have different... You go, you can't, you can't do that. So I, I do tend to resist this. Millennials have this brand and they're X, Y, Z. Millennials are nearly 40 now. Yeah, well, that's... (laughs) (laughs) Gen Zs are so, you know, or Gen Alpha, isn't it now? Yeah, I guess so. I know, I was trying to think what Um, beyond Z, yeah. Yeah, my kids keep trying to tell me what Freddie is. I'm like, I don't even know what Freddie is. (laughs) Um, But I, I, so I try to resist that. And, And maybe it's because I'm clinging on to my youth as well. Like I know that 
when I was younger, I had passion. I had this unbridled passion and I just wanted to be listened to and heard. And sometimes society beats that out of you, right? So I can't stand and say Google's a place where you bring your whole self to work. But if you're under 25, you better do things the way that the over 40s do it or else you're not going to, like, that doesn't yeah, hold up. So, you know, again, listening, you got you to tap in and, and create an environment where everyone can bring who they are and have a voice. As a female leader, business leader in this country, you're at the table. You get, as you say, you can probably get in the door anywhere um, these days and back as many times as you like these days. <laughs> How does that feel? And what do you see in this country in terms of the way we as a nation respond to female leaders? Well, there's two, there's two answers to that. One is I see tremendous opportunity for Australia, <laughs> right? Yeah, I think you have to be passionate about the digital future and where Google can play a role in partnering to help shape that digital future. That like gets me up and out of bed and and so when I do have the privilege of those meetings and that seat at the table, I will passionately talk about that at all costs. We've got such an incredible track record of creating amazing technology here, of huge scientific breakthroughs. I want my kids to be proud of that. I want my kids to be proud of the fact that Australia is a place where you can do these things, right? You don't have to go off to Silicon Valley to do those things. So that's something I'm super passionate about. I do think that, you know, we've still got a long way to go though with female leadership. I'm often not in a room where it's 50-50. I'm, you know, having to ask the question about why I'm invited to a panel and there isn't other women on the panel and am I that token invite or <laughs> whatever. We've still got a long way to go. Oh, and, and, you know, the other area where you see it is in VC funding and investment of female-based startups, Right. So that's incredible that number. Oh, it's yeah. So it's it's glacial, but you've got to keep pushing and you've got to keep moving things forward. And I think, you know, I've got to be a good example of what you can achieve um, for other women a- and try to bring that balance. Like I think one of the things I am really conscious of at Google is I am a mum and I do have kids and I want to be the boss of my boundaries and I want to have impact right? So if that means I pick my daughter up from school on Fridays, no matter what, no matter what, I will leave loudly when I do that, (laughs) right? Of course, I have to travel sometimes. Of course, I have to go overseas sometimes. Of course, I don't have to go to dinners sometimes. There's just not negotiables that you have to be consciously aware of. And I think women and men seeing that as an example and seeing that it's not just this like, work at all costs type approach is, is really, really important. Mel, I know you're a role model for many women uh, in the tech sector. Thank you for sharing your insights today. Oh, thanks, um, Helen, for having me. Particularly the flow and <laughs> thinking days. Thinking days. Do it. I'm, 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 I'm on board. <laughs> I just want them to be while I'm by a pool on the other side of the world. Well, that would be a Mel being day. <laughs> Totally different type of day. I feel like I missed the whole line of questioning then. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Thanks very much. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. 
Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell. And audio imaging by Nat Marshall. 